Several weeks ago, I had spoken about <clears throat> um, about the coronavirus, of course, and um, what appears to be the reasons for the coronavirus. And I had mentioned that there are basically three ideas. And of course, they're basically all sins. And uh, I, I believe that these are really, in many ways, what caused the coronavirus. However, uh, and just to repeat them what they were, uh, the first idea, of course, was the uh, tremendous amount of what's called hashkhasa, which is immorality and immodesty, okay, uh, a tremendous amount of that, and so on. And I include, included that the concept of uh, the corruption that has taken place uh, really around the world, the whole concept of same uh, gender marriages and homosexuality and so on. And there's a tremendous amount of that that is obviously prevalent in the world. Uh, I mentioned the second idea, which is the concept of Lashon Hara. Tremendous amount of uh, harmful speech that people are speaking and believing and listening to and so on. You know, uh, and there's a, a tremendous amount of that. And that, of course, creates sinas chinam, which is baseless or groundless hatred. And that also is a very important idea, which I had mentioned. And the third idea I mentioned was the concept that most people are involved in materialism, physicality, and the whole idea of a pursuit of spirituality is severely diminished. What I want to do tonight, in a certain sense, is part two. But this part is going to be qualitatively different. Why? Because I'm going to go into a much more profound reason of what is happening. And the idea of what is happening is not only in terms of a, a particular sin, but it really is the entire operation of creation in terms of uh, what, what is happening. In other words, I want to show you how this is really part of a divine plan, a divine agenda, uh, and, uh, and, and that's why it's really happening. Uh, so therefore, the ideas that I'm going to go into now are much more profound, yet, in a certain sense, they are much more uh, in tune with what is happening, as we will see, you see. And then, of course, I hope to talk about what I think is the good news, which I think is important. Uh, what does all this mean in terms of how close are we really to the redemption? In any case, that's what I want to do. Now, let, let me start off <coughs> with a chazal in Mesech the Sanhedrin. And the, the Gemara says that there's uh, several uh, Amoroim who are obviously tremendous Talmudic scholars who are responsible for writing the Talmud. And one of them was Rabbi Yechanan, another one was Ilfa. And Rabbi Yechanan was an individual was among the greatest of the sages in his time. And he wrote the Talmud Yushalmi that was written in Tferia. So we can imagine how great he was. Now, they had a tremendous view or understanding of the divine agenda. Not only that, but they had a tremendous skill at what's called Ruach HaKodesh. They were able to discern or understand or see things that would be. 
And the basis of that really in many ways was their understanding of the divine plan itself. In any case, here's what it says. It says, you know, when the Mashiach comes, so Rabbi Yochanan says, Ye say, let him come, obviously. But I don't want to see him. That's what he says. What does that mean? It means let him come, but I don't want to be around. I'd rather not be around in the generation that the Mashiach comes. You see, this is what he says. Now, that statement, of course, is remarkable. Because why wouldn't he, of all people, want to experience the entry of the Mashiach himself? Yet that's what it says. And he's not the only one. There are several rabbis, uh, uh, Chazal, that say the same thing in the Gemara Sanhedrin. What do they mean by that? How do we understand this? Well, what they are clearly referring to is something that has to precede the Mashiach. Chazal call it Chevle Mashiach, the birth pangs of the Messiah. And that's where they, they talk about it because it's, they compare it to a, a woman giving birth that right before the child enters the world is the most difficult part for the woman, you see. And that's called Chevle Mashiach, the birth pangs. So therefore, what Chazal are alluding to that is that there will be tremendous birth pangs, a tremendous amount of suffering and pain before the Mashiach comes. That's what they're alluding to. Now, we need to ask ourselves, what, what are they referring to? What type of pain or suffering or uh, problems and troubles and so on are they referring to? Now, most people would learn that Gemara, that they're referring to what's called persecutions, right? Or sickness or, or death or bankruptcies, perhaps even a plague, whatever. That they're referring to physical uh, disorders. Of some capacity. That's what most people would learn. And obviously, they don't want to see that. But the interesting thing about that is that's not what they were afraid of. What they were afraid of is something entirely different. And in truth, most people are not afraid of that, as we will see. But they were. Because you really have to be on a special level of holiness to be afraid of this. So what was that? It's called Mirt Or, the diminishment of light, which really means the diminishment, the diminishment, the reduction, severe reduction of holiness. That's what they did not, they could not tolerate. Because the greatest agony a tzaddik has is when there's no kedusha, when there's no holiness or righteousness. That is their greatest agony. And that is what they said, because they knew that based on the divine agenda, the world is going to go through a terrible period of darkness. No spirituality, or hardly any, you see. A tremendous amount of absence of light, which means an absence of holiness, an absence of righteousness, you see. An absence of justice. This is what they knew. Now, for us, that's a very important idea. Why? Because it warns us what's going to happen at the end of time. So we can imagine that that has to be so severe that these Chazal didn't want to live before the Mashiach came. 
So we can only already have an idea of what uh, the nature is, or certainly the, the quantity of this tremendous period of darkness, which is a religion, anti-religion, and so on. So this is what we see from these Chazal, that in the time before the Mashiach, the major idea of the Hevli Mashiach, the birth pangs of the Mashiach, is really not only a physical difficulty and harm, you know, persecutions and sickness and bankruptcies and divorce and sicknesses and so on, uh, but the real Hevli Mashiach, of which they were certainly concerned with, is the concept of spiritual darkness. And that they could not tolerate. How do we understand that? What is it about the divine agenda that brings that about? And this is what I have to speak about. <clears throat> now, the ideas that I'm going to present to you, certainly now, uh, the Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato mentions, talks a little about it, in a sefer called Maimah Ha which is an essay on the redemption. And he speaks about certain ideas which are astonishing, very important to know. And based on these ideas, you will now understand what the coronavirus is really all about. In any case, what are the ideas? Well, there's a certain thing called a shefa. A shefa is a divine flow of holiness. Sort of like a divine energy. And the ones that emit this divine flow is called the spheres. And the spheres are Kabbalistic, refer to the emanations that come from God. And what they do is they emanate the divine energy. God gives in them a divine energy, which really is called an ore, a light. And they emit that, you see. And that creates reality. That's what they do. So that's called a chef of ore. It's called a, a, it's called a uh, flow of divine energy or divine light. If that energy was to cease for whatever reason, if, if these uh, spheres were uh, blocked, then what would happen is the entire universe would annihilate. Because the universe needs that flow of divine energy. That's a very important idea. Now, in the beginning, this divine energy from these spheres flowed in enormous amount, you see. It's called the shar, the gate. In other words, the entry or the aperture, the uh, size of the uh, opening, that this divine energy was huge. It's called a gate. That's what happened. So, could you imagine all this incredible divine energy pouring through that gate? And that gate was open for a long time, especially in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu and when the Jews were in Eretz Israel, and certainly at the first temple, the divine energy was open in terms of the gate. Not only that, even in the second temple, there was an abundance of divine energy that came through a gate. But the problem is, is that as the Jews sin, what happens is, is the opening for this incredible energy diminishes. It's called miyat or. The energy reduces. And the greater the, uh, uh, so therefore, what happens is that the gate begins to close. 
you see. Because what sin does, sin does three things. And that has an enormous impact on the amount of holiness energy, divine energy, coming through to sustain the universe. The first thing is that, that will influence is that if, the gate, if, the, if it's blocked, if that divine energy is blocked, then clearly then there will be a reduction in the amount of energy, thereby influencing the entire world. The second way that it can be reduced, not just by the diminishment of that all, is a figure, a malach called the Satan. The Satan is a Satan. What he can do, and he has the ability to do that, is he himself can block the energy from coming down. But it's more than that, it's worse than that. Because when the Satan is given access to this divine energy, right, then what that means, he's unique. He can nourish off the divine energy itself. And as a result of that, the energy is now diverted to him. And he grows enormously powerful. And that's called Tigber Surah. You see, so this is the basic mechanism of creation, which is the results of the behavior of the Jews. It either reduces the energy flow, outflow itself, it's one. Two, it allows the Satan to block that energy, which again reduces the energy, obviously. And the third idea is that the Satan can be unique, he can nourish off that energy and take it for himself. So that clearly means not only is it being reduced, but it's even being diverted to the Satan. Now what that does for the Satan is he grows enormously powerful because that divine energy, no matter who it's directed at, will grow enormously powerful. So you have those three concepts which are very important and these constitute the mechanism itself. Now obviously, what the Jews want to do, obviously, is not to have that energy blocked, you see. And there are ways to do that, and that's which we will see is all part of the history of the Jewish people. But the main way the Jews reduce the Sutton's influence, either to take that and nourish from it and become strong, or to block it, and not only that, but even to increase the flow, intensify the flow, is through three ways, you see. And to increase or intensify the flow is really the tikkun. That's what the Jews have to do. How do they do that? Either by doing mitzvahs, commandments, or doing tshuva, repent. If the Jews sin, then like I mentioned, when the Jews sin, then the satan is able to block the energy and take it for himself. So the Jews can do tshuva, repent, you see, or the Jews can suffer. And suffering is another device that allows the energy to flow back into creation and back to the Jews. This is a fundamental operation, which I've mentioned many times, but it's very important to understand because what we begin to see is that this energy can be blocked in various ways and also how the Jews can unleash the energy again. But let's focus on now when the energy is blocked. So in the beginning, the energy was completely available in that sense. It's called the gate. The gate was open. So therefore, all this divine energy can come. What happened? As time went on, the Jews sinned. They sinned grievously. 
you see. So what happened was, is the Beis Hamikdash, the first Beis Hamikdash, was destroyed. Not only that, uh, the second Beis Hamikdash, which the rabbis tell us was destroyed because of the sin of sinas chinam, baseless hatred. But like I once mentioned, the Chafetz Chaim and the Marshal says, the real reason why the second Beis Hamikdash was destroyed is because of Lashon Hara. But I want to tell you something. Uh, the real damage that Lashon Hara does is not only that it harms a person or a Jew. The real damage that Lashon Hara does is it destroys the Achtos. It destroys the unity of the Jewish people. And that's a very important idea. That is the killer that, th that blocks this energy. Is that there's no Achtos, there's no unity. There's no love that a Jew has for each other. And of course that's called, and the opposite happens, it's Sinas Chidam, basis hatred, which is caused by Lashon Hara. Because Lashon Hara is the greatest instrument to destroy Jews because it creates baseless <coughs> hatred, we know that. And of course baseless hatred destroys the, like I said, the unity. You see. So therefore, the Jew, all this energy is coming down through this gate. And what happens is, as the Jews sin, the gate closes. Now I want to tell you something. If that gate closes, uh, which happened after the first base of Mikdash <coughs> and the second base of Mikdash, then the entire creation is destroyed. So obviously there's something wrong here. You know, the Jews have that kind of power, then they can literally destroy creation. So what, what God does, obviously because He doesn't want creation to be destroyed, what He does is He opens up another opening. So the gates close, so there's a severe diminishment of divine energy. And what he does is called chaloinois. He opens up windows. He opens up windows in the gate itself, so to speak. So therefore, a certain amount of light can come through, divine flow of holiness and energy. So therefore, the universe is not destroyed. Those are called the chaloinois, the windows. But the gate is closed, but the windows are open. And therefore, the world can sustain itself, and the Jewish people can also sustain themselves. But there's certain things that happen, because <clears throat> once the energy is diminished and restricted, and comes through windows, so to speak, and not the open gate, then the Jews begin to suffer terribly. Why? Because the Satan can now take from the windows, you see and grow in tremendous strength. So the Jews then go into Golas, you see? So when the gate closed and the windows opened, because of both of them, if, if the gate closed and there was no windows, the universe would be destroyed. In fact, all creation would be destroyed. So what the Bershom did, as I said, is he opened up the windows. He opened up windows. So there is a smaller opening for the divine light and energy to come through. But the result of that was a severe diminishment in the muzzle of the Jewish people, in the holiness of the Jewish people. And that really started in the year two, uh, 2,000 years ago, you see, and that, therefore that became the Golas, the exile. In fact, the exile began earlier because Rome took over, of course, Israel, Judea, and so on. So already after the destruction of the first temple, 
we already begin to see the diminishment of Or, which resulted in the Jews now being in exile in their own land. But at least they were not thrown outside. When the second Beisemic happened, then the Jewish people suffered exile, which means they were evicted from the, uh, the land of Israel. And as the windows itself began to close, why? Because of the sins of the Jews. So as a result of that, not only were the Jews in exile, which means in some foreign country, but not only that, but they were becoming persecuted. All kinds of anti-Semitism and persecution. And as the Jews sinned more and more, right, the windows close more and more. The divine energy closes because that is a consequence of sin. And as I mentioned, it's not only blocked, but it also goes to the Sutton and he's empowered. But the main idea is that the windows are closing. This is the result of the sins of the Jewish people. And therefore the Jews are visited by a terrible amount of disasters. I mean, what do you have? You have the, you have the uh, pogroms, right? You have the crusades, the persecutions, you have the evictions, right? From countries and so on, you know? You have the, uh, uh, the Inquisition. All of this is because the gates are closing. Or I should say, excuse me, the windows are closing. And the Sutton is taking it, you see? And therefore he's allowed, he's allowed to inflict tremendous amount of uh, suffering on the Jewish people. So therefore, this is basically what is happening. The concept of the gate closing, the windows opening, and now the windows are closing as a result of the, the sins of the Jewish people. You see. <clears throat> now, what is interesting is the question is, wait a minute, how far can they close? So what is possible, and this is what the Ramchal says, is that God will allow the windows to close up until what's called a nanometer. It's a little slit at the bottom of the window. And that's it. The amount of ore that comes through will only be that small slit. Could you imagine what that is? And therefore, a tremendous amount of difficulties would happen, you see. But they won't close totally, you see. Then what will happen is there will come a time when the window will shut. But wait a minute. If the gate is shut and the window is shut, that means there's no ore. There's no ore, there's no light from the ma'iris, from the luminaries, which are the spheres. None of that is coming through. So then creation will immediately destruct. But the interesting thing about that is, of course, is God will not allow that. So what happens is when the gate, when the window is shut, then immediately, a minute before the window is shut, the gate reopens. This is what happens. But when the gate reopens, what does that mean? That is the beginning of the Messianic era. You see, that's called the Pekidah. You see, in other words, right before the Messianic era, ultimately, the windows will shut, totally. They'll first come down and down and down because of the sins of the Jews, up until a slit. And if that slit was closed, all of it, everything would annihilate. So what God will do is open up the gate itself. In other words, the fact that the windows shut can only happen 
basically right before the messianic entry. And then the gate will open, and that's the beginning of the or, the beginning of the messianic era, which will then increment, incrementally grow. This is what will happen. So, when the gate opens after the window, after the window is shut, that is called the pekida. You see, that's what it's called. And as the windows, as I should say, as the gate opens, right, that's called the zechira. Both of them mean the remembrance. That, those are the two terms that refer to these two phenomena. The gate opening, when the windows shut, that's called the pekida. And when the windows, and when the gate opens to allow or the beginning of the messianic era in an incremental stages, that's called the zechira. Now these are very important ideas, very. Because what we see therefore is the beginning of this, you see. What we see therefore is what's called a scheme or the divine plan itself. Now they knew this, Rabbi Yochanan and the other rabbis knew this, that if the Jews bring the redemption, what's called chayobim, to sin, because the Jews can bring redemption one of two ways. What they can do is do tshuva. All the Jews will do tshuva. And, okay, that's one way to bring the redemption. So, which I said, tshuva will take back all the energy from the satan into the uh, spheres itself. Therefore, when the Jews do tshuva, that will do the tikkun, which is the restoration of the divine light. See? The second thing that will do it is their suffering. So the rabbis knew that if the Jews choose to, do, to, to not do mitzvahs enough, enough tshuva, and basically come through suffering, that means the Jews are sinning, you see. And as a result of that, the, the lights will be diminished and there will be the windows shut. And that is the greatest darkness that the Jewish people will have ever seen. And the question that we have to begin to think about is, what does that mean? How, how does that manifest itself? What does it mean today in the year 2020? Is that where we're at? Uh, that's what we have to understand. But it begins to show you what they knew. That if the Jews are going to bring the redemption through suffering, which means chayobim, kulum chayobim means through sinning, and therefore, the way they have to undo this, the, the, the sinning, of course, is through suffering and not enough tshuva or mitzvahs. Then they knew that's going to be a terrible time of suffering. And they didn't want to see it. So we can begin to imagine what the world is going to look like if these sadikim did not want to live at that time. You see. <clears throat> but in any case, now, what I'd like to mention anyway is that Kabbalistically, what it means and I'm not going to dwell on that, but just for those who would like to have that reference. The sphere of Yesoid, which is the ninth sphere, and there are ten, will enter or merge with Malchus, which is the tenth. That is the Pekida, which means that finally the window, is, the, the gate is open, because the ninth sphere of Yesoid merges with this tenth called Malchus, and as a result of that, the, 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 the energy begins to be restored in the creation itself.
But I, I certainly am not uh, going to dwell on that. <clears throat> and the one that will come as a result of that, of course, is Mashiach ben Yosef. And that will be the beginning of what he does, which I will talk about, you see. And also, the entire rehabilitation of the Jews will start. Because that will be the beginning of redemption. So what we have now is an interesting outline. We have gate. The light is coming to a gate. That shuts. The light is now coming to windows. That slowly closes if the Jews sin. And then in the end, that closes. But a minute before, what happens? The gate opens. And that is called the Pekita. And that is the beginning of the redemption. That's the plan. So we now understand what they were afraid of. Because they knew that the amount of darkness that will precede the Mashiach coming will be enormous. And a tzaddik is agonized when he doesn't have access to holiness. Now in many ways this is like the marble. Marble is a flood. What happened by the flood? What happened after 10 generations, right? is mankind sinned terribly, as we see from Parshish Noyach, right? They sinned terribly. So what they did, okay, is that the, the gate was shut just in that generation. And it was only by Avram Avinu that it began to open. But in their generation it began to sh it was shut, and windows also began to shut. So what happened is right before the windows shut, you see, God said, no. So what he did is he destroyed the world. Why? Because the energy that coming through the windows almost stopped. And had the windows shut, like I said, the world would have been destroyed through the flood and even Noach would not have survived. But for what some reason, Noach survived because there was a certain amount of righteous people in the world. And therefore it did not shut. It was down to a nanometer, you see. So therefore, what did God do? He brought a flood, right? And that's water. So how did everybody die? They died through drowning. Ask yourself, when a person drowns, how does he die? And the answer is, it's not the water that kills him. It's the lack of oxygen to his body. In other words, he becomes asphyxiated. That's his death, you see? So therefore, we see that the water which encompassed the entire planet asphyxiated everybody. You see, and what God did afterwards, and this is what he swore, that after the marble, when everybody died, except Noach and his family and all the uh, animals and so on on the earth, then God said, I will no longer bring a flood on the planet. What that means is a very interesting concept. That means God swore that I will no longer allow mankind, even though they have free will, and if they want to sin, they can sin. But I, I will not give them the ability to shut the windows without the gate being open. Can't happen. And in that sense, he swore. And what reminds us of that oath is the rainbow, which reminds God, so to speak, that you cannot shut the, the windows, even though mankind really has shut the windows based on their sin. So that was a change in the divine agenda at the time of the flood, at the time of the marble. But we do see that the gate can shut and the windows can shut, but it cannot shut completely where the world is destroyed. The gate will open as 
right before the windows shut, you see. Therefore, obviously, in the marble, there was incredible amount of darkness. So this we begin to understand is that the marble was the only time mankind can actually shut the windows without the gate being opened because they had free will and God said, listen, the consequences of sinning, which is a result of your free will, I will allow you totally to do the consequences, you see. But fortunately for us, there was Noach and a couple of righteous people that kept the window open. But theoretically, if everybody had sinned, the world would have been destroyed. And that is alluded to in the Urachaim HaKadosh, which is interesting. But it's only because there was some righteous people that the windows is not shut. It was a nanometer before the close, and therefore the world was saved. Why? Because the danger was that mankind had the full ability to shut the windows and the gate at the same time. Therefore God saved the world and he swore that he will not allow this to happen anymore. That even though mankind has free will and they sin, they can create enormous amount of darkness and so on, but they cannot shut both at the same time, fortunately for us. In any case, this is the concept of the marble. Now, what I'm saying now is a very important idea. And that's why the Chazal were afraid. They knew that the window is going to come down to the end. You see? And they didn't want to be around because the darkness is terrible. Now, let's come into today, today's time. Where are we at? Well, mankind, like I said, is in a state of terrible sinning. I'm mean, just looking around the world today. Think about that, right? Take a look at the belief of mankind. Hey, basically, everybody's into physicality and materialism. I mean, who thinks about God anymore? Who thinks about serving God or submitting to God's mitzvahs? How many people do really do tshuva? And you think about that. Everybody's into physicality and materialism. Not only that, the amount of lush and horror is stupendous. It's unbelievable, you see? And take a look at the corruption of mankind, as I will talk about a little later, and so on. The homosexuality. The, the corruption of man's general nature. Uh, and we begin to ask ourselves, what is going on here? Then you take a look at the mechanisms. The internet, how much lush and horror is on the internet, right? Not only that, what about smartphones? In the old days, in order to go to the internet, you needed a computer. And that stopped a lot of people. But today, anybody has access to the, the internet with all the lush and horror and all the pornographic material and every terrible thing on the internet, he just needs a smartphone. So the amount of corruption in the world is unbelievable. Therefore, the windows are shutting. Just like it happened by the marble. This is what's happening. But when did they really begin to shut? You know when? By the Holocaust. That's when it really began. So let's take a look at these idea, the concept of, of the Holocaust. The Holocaust, although we don't really know the reason, obviously, because it's infinite. Only God knows really why he did it and so on. But I can tell you that there were five things that resulted. And in many ways, that was the beginning of the windows closing. It wasn't down to the nanometer, but it was, let's say, a foot from closing. 
The Holocaust, it, it can be characterized by certain interesting things. And that's how we begin to see the diminishment of light. Because that's what's happening. So the first thing is that Jews died. Six million Jews died. What does that mean? It's not only the death of Jews, but it's more than that. Because every Jew is Kadosh. The Jew is a holy being. And we see that because it says, We also be Mikdash, God said, and they will make me a temple, and I will dwell in their midst. This is what God says. That means I will dwell in their midst. Which means that in the body of a Jew, his neshama is connected to the Shekhinah itself. Therefore, the body of a Jew, every Jew in and of itself, is holy automatically. That's what a Jew is, you see. And therefore, when Jews get together as a multitude, right, then the level of Shekhinah rises, you see. Therefore, you can say prayers that you can't say as an individual. That's called a minion or a tzibur. You could say Kaddish. You could say Bochu. You see, you could say Tefillah with tzibur. Why? Because when a group of Jews get together, minimally 10, automatically the divine presence intensifies because it's in the body of the Jew. You see. So when God killed 6 million Jews, essentially what he did is he eradicated Shechina or because it's not just the death of the Jew he eradicated he removed the divine presence of 6 million Jews in the world that's called extinguishing the divine light itself so that's the first concept of the Holocaust the second concept is that the places that were basically destroyed by the Nazis was the stronghold of Torah proliferation most of the places that they destroyed, whether it be Germany or Poland, Ukraine, and Russia, these were places of enormous amount of Torah. You see? Toward the end, in the end, he destroyed, or he tried to, Hungary, of course he did, and Romania, you know, they were not, even though, of course, they, were, they have a lot of centers of, of holiness and so on in Torah, but it wasn't the same as the other countries that Hitler and Machshimoy destroyed. So therefore what God did is he diminished the amount of Torah by destroying the cream of Torah. That's the second thing. So what do we see? There's a tremendous diminishment of light, of divine energy. Why? Because the windows are closing. That's what we see. Now why did God do that, as we will see? Because what God wants to do is balance the debt. Because he wants to bring the redemption. And the problem is that there's a tremendous debt that the Jews have because of the sinning of so many thousands of years. So what God did in, from 1939 to 1945, in six years, God diminished the debt of the Jewish people by all that unbelievable suffering. But what is interesting is normally the diminishment of this amount of divine energy, right, would normally take 500 years. That's what it normally takes. It doesn't diminish right away. In other words, the windows close slowly. And that's why there are many epochs of rabbis. There's what's called the Tanoim, and they were like three, four hundred years. And then there's the Amoroim, 
there's like maybe uh, four, three, four hundred years, and then there's the Ga'inim, and then the Rishonim, and the Achroinim, and so on. That means before you can see a tremendous diminishment of level of righteousness and holiness, it takes hundreds of years. What God did, because He wanted to accelerate the process, He diminished the amount of light that should have taken 500 years. He did it in six. Because the purpose of the Holocaust is to begin the process of the end. But the unique feature of that is that the divine energy is closing. And therefore the Holocaust responded to that closing by, like I say, the death of Jews, the, the diminishment of Torah, and, and so on. Uh, but there's another very bad thing that happened. Because everybody knows the Jew is the, is the, is the, is the main idea of the Torah, the Bible. You see? So everybody knows that the Jew is what's called the prince of the Torah. He is the, the prince and princesses of God. Right? The chosen people. So when everybody saw that the Jews are being destroyed by this madman, Hitler, that was a tremendous desecration of the name of God. Because people would say to themselves, where is God? Obviously he couldn't stop it. So God is weak. You see, he's feeble. So therefore that increased enormously the degradation, the desecration of God himself, which is an incredible increase in darkness. Again, it started by the Holocaust. And let's take a look how it continues. You see, after the Holocaust, what happened? The Jews left and they went to the West. You see, and they went to the uh, Israel. They went to America and so on. What was that? That was another destruction or diminishment because the windows are clothing further. Why? Because the incredible amount of assimilation occurred. So the Jews are sinning even more. So the windows are closing more and there's a much greater darkness. The Jews are intermarrying. Right now I think the, the rate is, is, uh, is uh, the 70% the of the Jews intermarry. Could you imagine that? And how many Jews have nothing to do with Judaism? That's called unaffiliation. So that's a second level of darkness. With the West and even Israel, with the Maskilim, the Arab Rav, they are destroying Judaism also. And then in the United States, you have the Reform and Conservative Movement and the, and the uh, Reconstructionist Movement. They are destroying Jews. You see, and so the darkness intensifies enormously. So again, it's because the windows are closing, you see. And then finally, what happens? The next stage of diminishment is when today you don't really have Gedolim and Poiskim anymore. You think about that. There are thousands and thousands of people learning in yeshivas. But how many are Gedolim? We don't have any Gedolim the way we saw even 30 years ago, you see. Where are the Gedolim today? You can number them on the hand, fingers of, of one hand. That's a further diminishment of Torah. Because Jews no longer really have in multitudes a mastery of the Torah itself. You see, a guy can learn in yeshiva for 20 years and come out hardly remembering anything. So of course, how can there be Gedolim? And this is happening in the majority of yeshivas. So that's a third diminishment. So the Holocaust is one. The assimilation and intermarriage is two. 
a third diminishment, a diminishment of light and the closing of the window producing darkness is the fact that there's no gedolim today you see but what the Rabbanishim now wants to do is he wants to bring the window down almost to the end you see but wait a minute right there are many things that prevent that so what the Rabbanishim does is incredible he looks so to speak for a device where he can almost shut the window where he can intensify the darkness to unparalleled historical levels because that is what the sins of the Jews include and by the way this also includes mankind which I will speak about why they are part of this what device can do that and the answer is the coronavirus that's how we can begin to understand the coronavirus itself yes what we now begin to understand is that the coronavirus is the device the vehicle how God can shut down almost the window and bring an enormous amount of darkness how do we see that well let's take a look the coronavirus is a very interesting virus it has many different characteristics or features what are they well the first thing is that it is global it's a pandemic it's not restricted to one country it has it has evaded so to speak or uh, uh, invaded I should say the entire planet how many pandemics have there been really not many but this certainly is one of them so that's the first unusual feature of the coronavirus see not only that we've noticed other things that every which is historical it never happened before every shul synagogue every yeshiva every base medrash right every one of them every minion every one of them is shut down this is global this has never happened in his Jewish history because there was always countries that Jews could continue their practicing Judaism whereas in other countries let's say there was a dictatorship or persecutions there they would stop it but there was never a global shutdown of shuls, synagogues, yeshivas, Beis Yaakovs, schools, minyanim this is unheard of that's a second bizarre feature of the coronavirus you see a third feature okay is everybody can't go out you gotta stay home God has stopped the intermingling of Jews with other Jews you see the fourth feature guess what everybody's alone that's right was there ever a time a Pesach that Jews had to sit by themselves without a Sibur, without a congregation or without even a mishpocha you couldn't even have your kids there right people were alone just themselves when their wives and maybe their immediate family but how many people were alone all together they sat alone making a Pesach Seder that's unheard of you see so not only Jews can't go out they're completely alone <coughs> that's unheard of so that is another feature of the Jewish people another feature 
is why, we, why is it we see many Rabbonim dying? Right? We see that. And people are wondering, what's going on here? You have many rabbis, Rabbonim, Rosh Hashivas, they seem to be uh, succumbing to the, to the coronavirus. And not only that, leaders are dying. Not only rabbis, or Rosh Hashivas, or Rebbe's, but even leaders of the Jewish people are dying also. This is what we also see. That's also an unusual feature, you see. And also, this virus likes older people. That's pretty interesting. Basically, if you're young, you know, you probably will hardly get it. And if you do get it, you may be asymptomatic. And even if you're symptomatic, you'll be okay in a day or two. It is somebody over 60 or 65, he's got to worry. So why did God create a virus, which is of course his creation, in order to somehow take away elderly people? Do you notice what I'm saying? Is that there is an incredible amount of features that's almost unheard of, you see. How do we understand this? Now we can begin to understand. Because the coronavirus is a device that increases incredibly the darkness on the Jewish people because the window is about to shut. That's why. Which means that we are right before the redemption itself. So the bad news is that it is designed to create incredible amount of darkness in the Jewish people and also the non-Jews, which I will talk about later. But certainly the Jews. And it is. Every Jew is alone. He can't go out. He's alone. He can't go to a minion. All the yeshivas are shut. The shuls are shut. This is absolutely incredible. But now let's see if we can understand this. Each feature is designed to minimize holiness. It is designed to minimize kedusha, which means the awe. It is designed to intensify the darkness on a level we have never seen before. How? Let's take a look. First of all, it's global. That means every Jew is affected. It's not like it affects one country. It is global. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is that what God has done is to diminish holiness to the Jew, light, spiritual energy. He has shut down every place of holiness. Think about that. Where is the Kedusha of Klai Yisrael? First Kedusha. It's a shul where people pray. No minyanim. No schools. No yeshivas. No Torah being learned, basically. The only Torah being learned is in your private home, if you can get on with a phone, with a chavrusa, and so on. But basically, he has shut down every mokum kodosh. Think about that. That's astounding. So that's the second thing he's done. And what that has done is enormously intensify the darkness. And what that has also done is reduce severely the amount of divine light. You see, the next thing he's done is that he afflicts, to a great extent, rabbis. Why? Uh, because it's not only the places that have holiness, but also the rabbis or the leaders, that they themselves are the cause of a great deal of holiness that spreads to the Jewish people. So he's taking them also, tragically and unfortunately. 
Another idea, you see, is that <clears throat> the leaders also are passing away because they are obviously responsible for a great amount of ribui shefa, which is the uh, intensification of divine energy. So they're also going, you see. <clears throat> Therefore, now, nobody goes out, means you cannot mingle with anybody, any other Jew, to both of you together should increase the amount of Kedusha. Because like I said, the body of a Jew itself is Kaddish. So you have to be alone. So therefore there's no Kaddish because the level of divine energy, Shechina, presence, is insufficient. So therefore nobody can go out. And not only that, right, nobody can come in. So you got to sit Pesach, which is such a holy night, and be alone. That's the intensification of darkness you see <clears throat> and also that's why the elderly are more affected because elderly people are closer to Judaism as it was practiced in Europe you see they're closer to the uh, the era of Jewish history where Jews were much more religious so the ones that are being left alive to a certain extent more or less is the young people who are much further away from Judaism as practiced in Europe or as practiced traditionally by the elder generation, you see. Uh, so when you think about that, it, it's absolutely um, amazing that the entire virus, right, is designed to increase incredibly the darkness of the Jewish people, you see. Why is that? So that the windows are basically closing, you see. This is what's happening. It's an unbelievable thing when you think about that. Remember, this is historical. This has never happened before in Jewish history, where everybody is in his house. No minyanim, no shul, no yeshiva, no nothing. It's incredible. You can't go out, you can't let people in, you see. And this is continuing, because this is a device that's the gezerah, the decree, to intensify incredibly the darkness. Why? Because that indicates that the window is one nanometer from being shut. And what God has done is He has increased the, the way that Jews will suffer in absolute darkness, which means the absence of Kedusha, the absence of holiness, you see. So He has created seven different features of a virus as only he can do that in order to do this that is basically where we're at you see and that explains the unique features of this virus but I have to tell you one interesting note really even though the darkness is intensifying there are certain things about this virus which in a certain way mitigates the severity that's right that's the Rachmanus what is that First of all, the Spanish flu, it took a year or two years for that to end. And 50 million people died. So what God did is he's allowed this virus, something which is unbelievable. It has spread to 194 countries in less than two months. Why? Because he wants to accelerate the process of the darkness. He doesn't want it to delay for months and years. No. 
In other words, when the windows are about to shut, he wants it to happen quickly so he can start the messianic process by opening up the gates. So that's the first mitigation, is that it has spread with unbelievable speed. The second mitigation is that basically only 2% of people die, not 98%. I mean, think about that. Between 50 and 100 million people died in the Spanish flu in 1918. It's not 2%. And by the Black Plague, the bubonic plague, it wiped out more than half of Europe. They estimate between 50 and also 100 million people. And there were much less people on the planet in those years in 1348. You see? Yet today, about 2 or 3% die. Now, of course, every death is a terrible tragedy. Of course. But it's not like those pandemics. So that indicates there's a tremendous mitigating factor. And the third mitigating factor, it's pachat mavis, is that the major kapora, or, or the major affliction that the Jews are suffering, is the fear of death. It's not the death itself. And those three ideas, the fact that it spreads so quickly, the fact that 2 or 3% die and 97% live, and the fact that the major suffering is fear of death, you see, those are mitigating factors that say that God wants to do this quickly and not as severe as he did by a real pandemic. And that's really a, a very important idea, you see. <clears throat> now, how do we understand this? What does this mean? Well, whenever you want to understand the concept of the Messiah, right, or the process, you need to go back to Egypt. Because Egypt was the first redemption, you see. It was the first redemption, you see. And we know that it says, that we know that the last redemption is the exact, it will be in the same form as Egypt, which is the first redemption. Let's take a look at Egypt. Egypt has the same things we are witnessing now. They have what? The three ideas. One is a tremendous severity of darkness and suffering. And that is the windows almost closing. Then the second thing is the gate opened, you see. And it opened and that was the redemption in Egypt. Uh, but the third thing is also is very unusual. Even though the Jews were redeemed, guess what? The evil pursued them in the Kriyas Yamsuf. Do you imagine that the evil was resurrected and Paroi reattempted to destroy them or to enslave them again? So that's a third phase, which in many ways is very important. So Egypt, what was the first phase? Is where the windows are almost shut. What is that? It's when Moshe Rabbeinu came to Paroi and said, let my people go. God has said, let them go. And Paroi said, what are you talking about? Who is God? Not only that, the Jews are lazy. They have to gather straw. So not only do they have to build bricks, they have to gather straw. Do you know what that means? That means you can't sleep. Imagine trying to gather straw at night. And we're not talking about flashlights and bulbs. We're talking about using a candle to go through Egypt and gather straw. Could you imagine the suffering that the Jews had to go through? That was the closing of the windows, which didn't close, you see. And that's what preceded the redemption, which of course is now the 10 plagues. Exactly. 
And that's the redemption itself, you see. So that was the, where the, where the, the uh, gate was opened, you see. So when Paris said gather straw, that was the gate almost closing. But before that gate closes, of course, the, the gate, uh, I should say the windows close, the gate has to open, and that is the redemption. That's Marcus Bechiris, which was a plague, right? And the Jews leave Egypt, you see? That's the redemption. So what that meant is that the gate opened. But the interesting thing about it, and that was the Pekida, by the way, and that's why God says to Moshe Rabbeinu, Pokadati, I have surely remembered the cries of the Jews in Egypt. That's called Pekida, you see? And I said what the Pekida was, it's the gate opens, you see? That's what happened. But the interesting thing about it is that there was a resurgence of evil which shows us that even though the gate opens, evil, in the end, will try the last attempt to research and to bring the Jewish people tremendous suffering, even though the gate has opened. In other words, this is called, this is the, which is astounding when you think about that, is an attempt of evil to recapture their dominance and to destroy the Jews or to severely suffer the Jews, right? That's what it's called, you see? And uh, that is the concept of goig mogoig. That's really what goig mogoig is. Goig mogoig, goig from the land of mogoig, who is destined to war against the Jewish people in the land of Israel and against the Jewish people, that is really a messianic war. It's against Mashiach ben Yosef, you see? And that is the uh, equivalent to the whole concept of the resurgence in Egypt at Kriyas Yamsuf. But what happened? At Kriyas Yamsuf, they were utterly destroyed, and that was the end of evil. And therefore, the opening of the gate, as begins to open incrementally, will open further and further until the evil is destroyed. So therefore, we realize that even when the gate opens, you see, initially, or at the beginning, evil will try to resurge. Because they realize that there's a redemption. That's goig and mogoig. And in Egypt, it was a Kriya Samsov. Then what will happen is the, the evil will be destroyed. And that's what happened. They were destroyed at the sea. And the Chazal tell us that, that they were even destroyed in Egypt at the same time. You see. And therefore, it can now incrementally increase the Kedusha. Which is what happened in 49 days. Right? Each day it incrementally increased the holiness until the gates were fully opened by Matan Torah. You see. Now I'm not going to go into that. But Matan Torah is what's called the Zechira, where the gates are open totally. You see. And that took obviously 49 days and on the 50th day. So this is what's happening now. You see. So really, in many ways, uh, Egypt tells us what is happening, you see. So therefore, this is exactly what will happen in Akhrasayomim, in the end of days. Uh, we are now witnessing a coronavirus, which ultimately speaking, is the same idea where every Jew in Egypt, and there were no other Jews, Moshe was the only Jew out of Egypt, actually he was in Egypt at that time. It's the same thing as all Jews globally. Every Jew in Egypt was now subject to this terrible decree of Parai, where they had to gather straw. Could you imagine the suffering 
and so on, this is what happens, you see? So that is the equivalent, really, of the coronavirus. But there will be a redemption, just like there was in Egypt, you see. But that redemption will be slow, and they will try to resurge again, that's goig and mogoig, okay, whatever that is, manifestation of that, and then the redemption will occur totally. And therefore the Mashiach ben Yosef will come, and he has four jobs. The first job of the Mashiach ben Yosef is to bring the Jews back from Golas. Now you may say to yourself, well, how is he going to do that? I mean, people, people are, they, they are wedded to physicality and whatever countries they live in. Why would they go to, with the Mashiach ben Yosef to Eretz Yisrael? And the answer is because the Mashiach ben Yosef will build the Beis Amikdash. There's a, t a very fascinating Gemara to Yushalmi in Masech the Maiseshene. You see, it is Perik uh, Hay 5, Halacha uh, Beis. And it says there, okay, that Omar Rav Acha, Rav Acha says that from here we see, without referring to the previous, that the Beis Hamikdash, Hashlishi, the third temple, of Yechezkel will be built by the Mashiach bin Yosef or rather it will be built not by Mashiach bin David but by Mashiach bin Yosef you see so what that means is that imagine imagine if you knew and I want to tell you something that the, 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 the third temple is going to come down from heaven it won't really be built by man most of it will be built uh, from heaven and it will descend as a fire from heaven could you imagine the Jewish people knowing that the temple now exists and that the temple itself is divine because it came down from heaven. Basically, nobody built it. What do you think the Jews are going to do? Everybody's going to pack out. Because who doesn't want to be in Eretz Israel when the divine presence has been restored and the temple exists? You see, could you imagine the amount that the gate will be opened? That is basically how the Mashiach ben Yosef will bring the Jews back by having that miracle. So he builds a temple and all of a sudden all the Jews are back. That's the Kibbutz Goliath, right? And then of course he reveals the, the uh, Messianic light, the Orishim, which is a whole different way of understanding reality, which I had spoken about. And then the fourth thing is he will take on the Goyim and he will vanquish the nations of the world. And then they will all, and that's the Goyimogig and so on, and they realized. And then right after he comes and does that, then you have Mashiach bin David, who will then usher in the Messianic era. So, so the one who does all the preparations for the Messianic era is Mashiach ben Yosef. And the one who ushers in the Messianic era, where the Jews are now the supreme nation, and all nations now understand and admit who the Jews were, you see, that will be ushered in by the Mashiach ben David. So in that sense, there's good news and bad news. The bad news is that the windows are about to shut. But remember, they cannot shut unless the gate opens. And once the gate opens, then we are looking at the Messianic era. And I'll tell you something interesting. You see, it says in the Torah, Pokai Pokaditi, God says to Moshe Rabbeinu in Pashas Vo'era, Pokai Pokaditi, I once said this, 
that I have surely remembered my people in Egypt and their cries. <clears throat> you see. Now the word pocket pakadi refers to the pakida, which is when the gate when the gate opens. But when will that happen? So the gematria, the numerical equivalent of the letters of pocket pakadati, is seven hundred and eighty. You see. Seven hundred and eighty. That's interesting. Because what is this year in Hebrew, in the calendar? 5,780. That's interesting. So the gematria of Pokit Pokadati is 780. But wait a minute. It's 5,780. So let's take a look at the first word, Pokoid. I will have remembered. Pokoid is spelled Pei Kuf Dalet. You see? But it has a Vov. But that Vov is not written in the Torah. But it is pronounced. So therefore, since it is not written, that Vav, which is, uh, is Gematria of 6, is not added to 780. But since it is pronounced, read, therefore, that Vav is part of the calculation. How much is Vav? 6. That is that, so really, pocket Pokadati is in 6, in the 6th millennium, which is the year 5000, 780, which is the gematria of pocket Pokadati. Well, that means, by the way, that the Messianic era can start now. In other words, <coughs> if the Pekida is 5,780, well, guess what? That's this year, you see. Because this year <coughs> is Tovshin Pei. In fact, Tovshin Pei is Tieshnas Pekida. That the Pekida will be, right, in Tovshin Pei. You see? So wouldn't it be incredible if the Pekida, which is the opening of the gate, happens this year. But in order for that to happen, it has to be that the coronavirus must disappear. You see? But wait a minute. In order for the gate to open, uh, then the windows have to shut. Because now the entry of or Kiddusha, must come only through the windows, which of course is redemption. Uh, so wouldn't it be something at Seder night, the 15th day of Nisan, and I'm just saying, wouldn't this be incredible? When everybody sat alone, right? Everybody. In fact, in Israel, they say you can't even go out of your house. Could you imagine? That's the first time in history and that's exactly what it says in, in the Torah, that a man cannot go out of his house while the Dever, right, the Malchamovas, which is Makas Becheris, the slaying of the firstborn, is happening. So what's happening is that in Israel we are replicating, or not only that, even in America and around the world, nobody can go out of his house. That is an exact replication of Egypt, when nobody can go out of his house. So wouldn't that be amazing? If at Chatzois, which is exactly midnight, let's assume it was 12 a.m. It's really later, about 1. But let's assume it's 12 a.m. Wouldn't that be incredible if at the exact moment that every Jew was in his house, which is the greatest darkness that the Jews have ever seen, certainly on Pesach night and certainly in general, wouldn't that be amazing if at 12 o'clock, Right? The gate opened. Yes, on Pesach. And one minute after 12 or after Chatzois, the windows shut. 
because the windows cannot shut unless the gate is open. Now, wouldn't that be unbelievable? Who knows? If that was the case, then you will begin to see many, many different uh, manifestations of that slowly and incrementally, you see. So that would certainly be an unbelievable event, and so on. In any case, we now understand in many ways what is going on, you see. Now, <clears throat> there are certain other ideas. There's one idea which I wanted to mention, which uh, there, will, there will probably be people that don't like what I say, but it's not what I say, it's what the Medrash says. I believe that the decree to begin the end or the darkness before the end was decreed because of a specific sin. In other words, it was sealed. It wasn't decreed, I should say. It was sealed because of this sin. What sin is that? Well, let's take a look at the previous time that the world was almost destroyed by the Mabel. So there's a medrash. It's a medrash rabbo. It's in Parsha Chof Vov, section Hey 5. And here's what it says. It's an incredible medrash. It says that the decree to destroy the world by the flood, the Mabel, was sealed. Why? In other words, the decree happened before, but it's like any decree, it can be overturned. But if it's sealed, it means it's going to happen. What sealed the marble? So the Medrash says what sealed the marble was that a man would marry a man or an animal, and he would actually write a contract, a ksuba, to, that, to, to legalize that relationship. And because of that, the Medrash says, the decree to destroy the world was sealed. But that's incredible. You notice it doesn't say because there was a, a man would marry a man, which obviously is, is not just homosexuality, but it's marriage and so on. It doesn't say because people commit Mishkav Zoho, which is uh, homosexuality. And we know what the Torah says, that if somebody commits that, then it, the, 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 the uh, punishment is death. We know that. The Torah says that. So homosexuality carries with it, according to the Bible, the Torah, a death sentence. But what is interesting, it doesn't say in the Medrash that the decree of destruction of the world through the flood was made, sealed, I should say, because of homosexuality. No. But it does say that it was sealed because they wrote a contract to this. What does that mean? It means that not only was homosexuality practice, that would not have ensured, basically, the seal, the decree. What sealed the decree was that it became legal. It became the norm. It was recognized as an official type of relationship where a man can marry a man. You see, that's why it was sealed. And God said, this cannot be. Because I created a world where everybody has to have children reproduce, you see. And therefore, if this is what they engage in, and now becomes legal, becomes normative, and not only that, but you now want to spread it throughout the whole planet, that sealed the decree of the destruction of the planet. This is what the Medrash says. And I thought about that, you see. What about now, you see? Why is America suffering? I thought about that. Why is the world suffering, you see? 
And I realized what the answer was. And I will say it, because it really should be said. <clears throat> it's one thing to commit homosexuality. That's a sin. Even though the Torah is very severe about that, where it says that the punishment is death. Fine. But it's another thing to make it legal, to make it the norm, and not only that, but to, to promote it as a lifestyle. That's another thing altogether. And what we found, what we find, is that America has now uh, recognized this as a, a valid legal alternative lifestyle. And which means that not only that, but these people who engage in marrying men or whatever are trying to promote that behavior, uh, you see. And that is identical to the behavior of the flood itself, you see. <clears throat> uh, and, and we see that. And where do we see this? And I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you. There's a guy who's running for president. He's a candidate. And he's married to a man. We all know who that is. Yeah, I don't have to say his name, you know. But wait a minute. How could you have somebody who's married to a man run for president? But that's terrible. Why? Could you imagine if he won? That means he would be able to go to every presidential function with his married man. Could you imagine what that would say to every place? That this is okay. Because everybody could say, hey, why can't I do this? The President of the United States is married to a guy, a man, you see? That's one of the greatest types of promotion ever known. Because it would justify, legalize, normalize, you see, and promote this lifestyle, which the terrorist says is punished by death. And not only that, the Medrash says, that's what sealed the decree of the end. This is what we see, you see? And it's interesting because when that was happening, I said to myself, they are doing the exact same thing the Medrash said. And I believed at that point, although they didn't know why, I said the world is going to come to a terrible suffering globally. And they are going to have what's called a mabble, a flood. But the flood is not water. The flood is what? It's the same thing that can asphyxiate you. It's the coronavirus. And the coronavirus kills you the same way water does. It causes asphyxiation, you see. So I believe the reason why the world is suffering is because they have replicated the exact decree, the sealing of the decree of the flood, the biblical marble, the flood itself. And even though I know people will feel uncomfortable with that, and of course they're going to disagree, that's okay. But I am quoting a medrash, I'm quoting what really happened, is that America allowed this to go forth? How many people voted for this guy? The fact that America allowed this means that it has now become the norm to marry a guy or to commit these acts, but certainly to marry a guy. And you can actually be legally discriminated again, legally uh, held in account for discrimination. And I believe that's exact replica of what happened in the marble. And that is why the world is suffering from the coronavirus. You see, uh, same idea. The coronavirus is a plague. It is a marble, but not of water, but a virus. Same thing. And in fact, it kills in the exact same manner. In any case, this is what we see, you see. And also in terms of Eretz Israel, which I want to comment on, it is amazing what's going on there. 
not only, and I believe it's because the, uh, what the Bansha wants to do is stop the era of Rav. He wants to stop those Jews who want to destroy this primacy of Torah. And he wants to replace it with secularism, you see. And what is amazing to watch is that three elections and they still haven't done anything. And even though you think there's a government that seems to be unified, but I want to tell you something, really, when you think about it. Uh, this government that is about to be unified is absurd. Why? Because Gantz has only 15 or 17 seats, yet he has been given equal power to Netanyahu, who has 58 seats. This is not a government. This is a co-premiership. Gantz has now become the, premier, uh, the prime minister, maybe not in title, of which he will assume in 18 months. But he has become equal in power to Netanyahu. Did you ever hear anything like this? You know, it's an interesting chazal that say that when God created the sun and the moon, the moon came over to God and said, wait a minute, we both dominate, you see? Because the moon at that point was like the sun. But you cannot have two kings in one kingdom. Obviously not. So God therefore said, you're right, and I will diminish you, which is the moon. How could you have a government that has two prime ministers? It's absurd. You see, this is not a government. This is a mockery of government. And not only that, they want to create more ministries, 36 ministries, which means that they estimate that it's going to add a billion dollars, or rather a billion shekel, to the budget. Israel cannot afford that. It's unbelievable. You see, the question is, why is this happening? You see, because it's really a government of mockery. It's absurd. And the answer to that <coughs> is because Netanyahu is indicted for three crimes. You see, and he will do anything to get out of it. So what he has done is Gantz is f doing what's called extortion, blackmail. Because Gantz is now the speaker of the Knesset. So what he did, he threatened Netanyahu. He said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to bring up the, uh, a pass a law, which I can do because I'm the speaker, that anybody who's indicted cannot be prime minister. So you're gone. And I'm also going to say anybody who's been a prime minister for two terms cannot be a prime minister. So you're also gone. He told that to Netanyahu. And Netanyahu was desperate not to be indicted. You know, he allowed himself to be uh, extorted. That's exactly what Gantz did. So what he did is he gave away half the store to Gantz. But it's a mockery. Uh, so everybody in Israel is starving because there's no economy now. And these guys now want to create a government that's going to spend a billion shekel? This is lunacy, you see. Because that's how desperate the heir of Rav is to rule. That they're willing to give a government that is absurd and, and, and almost psychotic in order to avoid losing the, the, uh, the governor, governorship, the ability to rule Israel. So this we see again is an attempt of evil to resurrect itself, to keep going. You see, so don't be fooled. And what the interesting thing about that, which I find, is that how can Likud, which is the party of Netanyahu, how can Likud allow Netanyahu to be a candidate for prime minister since he is vulnerable to extortion, blackmail? Of course, that's exactly what happened. So how foolish can they be? 
They allowed him to be a candidate for prime ministership, even though he was indicted for three crimes. So that means that, he, that Netanyahu is a person who's a candidate that can be extorted, blackmailed. How could they do that? It's insane, you see. So look at the comedy that is about to happen, you see. But what does it mean? <coughs> what it means is the same idea that the darkness is continuing and it's the attempt of this government, the era of Rav, which is basically a secular government, you see, to continue and in many ways diminish the entire ability of Jews in Israel to be religious, to be Jewish. So I wanted to mention that also. It's interesting, all of this is happening. The Jewish people are being stripped of their Kedusha. The, the, the world is being stripped or destroyed based on the coronavirus. Can we even begin to imagine the calamity, the disaster of the economy of the United States or the entire world, how much they have lost, the financial bankruptcy and so on? And even Israel, the, 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 the evil continues or attempts to continue and so on. All of this is happening simultaneously. You see, why? Because it's the exact same idea is that the, the, the windows are closing because of the sins of the Jews and as a result of the fact that the windows are closing, right? God's saying, I must end it all because the gate must open, you see. Hopefully the gate opened on, on, on Pesach night, you see. And what we're witnessing is the end of evil, hopefully. But this is what's happening in the world. So, but the, the, the good thing about this is obviously that God will end it. How? Because even if he shuts the window, even if he brings incredible darkness, when he opens up the gate, we cannot even begin to understand what the unbelievable entry of Kedusha, of holiness, that will be. It will be a world that we cannot even comprehend the goodness, the unbelievable holiness, the unbelievable uh, success of that world, you see? And it's not just the Jewish people, it'll be the entire world. And I believe this is what's about to happen, this is what's called forthcoming. So, in a certain sense, listen, it'll happen. The Mashiach will come, he will build the Beis Hamikdash. he will return all the exiles, he will counter the nations of the world and show them who the Jews really are, you see. And he will bring down the Shekhinah itself, the divine presence, which we cannot even begin to understand what that is. And therefore, that will be the end of Jewish suffering, totally. It will be end of the, the end of the Satan, you see. And his all ability, his all ability to take from the Kedusha, it's gone. It's called the Klippus. They will be destroyed. And it will be the entry of the Shekhinah itself. And we cannot even begin to understand. And that's what it means in the Pesach. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of God, which is the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence, as the waters covers the seabed. In other words, the extent of the Divine Presence will be something that is actually incomprehensible. That is the goodness that will replace everything. Why? Because in the end, even though there's darkness to the Jews, in the end, the Jews did the tikkun. They did it. And I want to tell you something. 
you cannot believe what's going to happen. What's going to happen is that the entire creation, all the hundreds of trillions of angels, right? Every species of animal, every human, every shade, everybody is going to scream at the top of their lungs that the Jews did it. They did the tikkun. And we cannot even imagine what that means because all creation will scream at the top of their lungs that the Jews did the tikkun. And therefore the world is now going to enter a period of unbelievable tranquility, success, peace, holiness, righteousness, and that the Jews will now be able to hug God and God will dance with all the Jews, the Jewish people. And all the nations will say, thank God the Jews did the tikkun because we can now benefit from this unbelievable period of time. Thank you.